Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on. ABC Radio. So I developed with my family a methodology called Yanba Jungle, which is really talk story in the context of our mining companies, a range of mining companies that wanted to come in and destroy our homelands. So we developed a methodology to speak back to that, specifically using our own cultural concepts, specifically using the emancipatory project of self-determination and the self-determining aspirations of our elders. Innovation, old and new ways. This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Many Australians today would recognise David Uniapin as the face on our $50 note. But few would be familiar with the extent of his influence over contemporary methods of research and philosophy. A prolific inventor, preacher and author, David Uniapin spent much of his life advocating for the rights of First Nations Australians as the first Aboriginal author to publish in the English language. He was also an inventor, with his most significant creation being a shearing machine which formed the basis of the tools still used in the industry today. Uniapin's achievements continue to inspire new generations of First Nations innovators, bringing a unique perspective to research practices and the process of storytelling. Dr Jason DeSantelo is one such practitioner. His work integrates practices of cultural renewal through new technologies to highlight the value of traditional knowledge systems and their practical applications today. I sat down recently with Jason as part of the Australian Museum's Lunchtime Conversation series, First Nations Innovators and Visionaries. I began by asking him to reflect on his formative years growing up in Aotearoa, New Zealand. Uh, Nana Manuru, greetings everyone. I was born in Darwin in in the tropics and uh, unfortunately it was the tail end of the stolen generations and what happened was my mother was forced to give me up for adoption. And Cyclone Tracy came in in 74 and totally smashed, smashed Darwin. And um, I was adopted by a Kiwi, Kiwi mum. At that time, she just took off all the women and children and dogs and pets were, were sent away. And so she took that time to leave my father, who was a very, very abusive man. And um, she took off back to Aotearoa, New Zealand. And so I arrived there as a young, um, yeah, young two-year-old. And um, this image is really quite important, I thought, as a, a reflection of my understanding of the importance of water as a connector. So this is the west coast of Auckland where I grew up. In my mind, it's been a huge influence on how I see the world. Rather than seeing the ocean as a, as a divider, it's very much a connector. So the waters as a way to relate and understand connection has been important growing up. And in particular, um, the idea of perpetual motion and the obsession that David Unipon had with perpetual motion is really beautiful, I think. I think it's a really fascinating, under those conditions, to have someone who has so much determination and willpower to try to achieve what has, still hasn't been achieved. But also, you know, Aotearoa New Zealand has a huge sheep population, of course. And, you know, I don't want to belittle that thing that he seems to be most famous for. But the idea of surge and resurgence, the idea of perpetual motion, in my mind, is reflected in the ocean. I think the ocean gives us a lot, a lot of inspiration in terms of life and renewal and the idea of connection across, across the lands. Yeah. And then later on, I, I came back to, to Australia. It has given you this sort of wonderful ability to see across the world's oldest living culture which you were born into, and, of course, the youngest culture in the Pacific, the Maori culture, which you were very closely integrated into. But I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how your worldview was shaped given those, you know, interesting dynamics you grew up with. Um, yeah, so, you know, growing up in a single-parent family is, is quite unique. My grandparents had a huge influence on me, my Italian grandfather and my, um, my grandmother. And it's a very matriarchal family, really strong woman. And it's the same back here. My family, my mother is one of seven sisters here. So, yeah, my whole life I've been surrounded by a really strong woman. And my grandfather in particular taught me a lot about 
the idea of being a respectful man. And I hope we're passing that on to our, our children. But in particular, after schools, I would be sent to a sort of a foster home scenario where I'd stay and there were heaps of Māori and Pacific, Pacific people. So my nickname was Abo at school. You know, I got in lots of fights and um, I was the only Aboriginal kid probably that I knew of. But I was very much adopted into the Māori sort of kinship, whanaungatanga. So I, I think I kind of grew up in essence through the land as well. So um, understanding more as I grew older, I realised that Australia being one of the oldest places in the world with the oldest culture, and then growing up in Aotearoa, New Zealand, which is one of the newest lands in the world and the newest Indigenous culture. So I think all of the, you know, the materials and all the food and all the air and the breath that has came into me as I grew up created a different kind of person in a way. And that's, that was really interesting when I came back and went and met all my family in the middle of law school. You know, all my family, they like a lot of, got a lot of fear family, but I've got a lot of really dark family. They didn't freak out at all. So it was when I came back, the family were like, you know, we have the same blood. We have the same blood. You know, it's not about skin colour. And I think that was, uh, that was part of the experience of growing up in, in Pacifica in particular. Yeah, the, the beauty of that, that kind of nurturing family approach to life. Outside of the family, were there particular leaders or thinkers who influenced you? Yeah, I mean, back in the day, I think, you know, some of the bigger moments around, you know, Nelson Mandela and the actual struggles of people who are being incarcerated for a movement really struck a chord with me. People like Moana Jackson and others who are real leaders in, the, in advocating for Indigenous rights. The Bringing Them Home report, which I read at law school, was really amazing because back in the day, I think what happened in the media, there wasn't a lot about Aboriginal culture. So you might see a bit of Bangara or you might see sort of like the really popular culture. But reading things like the Bringing Them Home report, which was authored by McDodson and others, really shone a light on some of the, the real radical and activists in the, you know, in the legal fraternity. Michael Mansell was another real leader that I really looked up to from afar, yeah, as well. So you did end up at law school. It wasn't really mentioned so much in your CV because I guess we focused on the mm. cultural work you've done and the work around filmmaking and design and innovation and methodology, but you did start out at law school. What made you decide that that was the path you wanted to take? Um, what did you decide to go to law school? Yeah, um, one of the things that I always had growing up was a document, and there's a beautiful letter from David Unipon that I want to share later. Growing up, I had my mother ask for records about my history. So what happened, the system was hacked and someone sent all of my legal documents for adoption. And so from a very young age, I had this document which said, oh, I'm the son of a half-caste Aboriginal woman. She was one of seven sisters. His father was really white, you know, that sort of stuff. And I think that idea of having that document all those years, which really defined me and really traps a lot of our people, these really, you know, really damaging documents which try to dehumanise you. So the thing about going to law school was, was good because it was a way of liberating myself. So going to law school and really challenging and going into the heart of the suppressive system, I think that's one of the reasons why I went to law school. Yeah. How did you feel when you graduated? Yeah, pr pretty relieved. Yeah, <laughs> yeah pr pretty relieved is pretty much, pretty much it. I was, it, was, it was tough. My oldest son was born in the middle of my law degree. So it was a tough time for me. So graduating is always a really achievement for the family. I felt great. I was going to ask how they felt, because you look at the life of the generation before ours, all our mm. great thinkers were often denied that opportunity to go through and do this, the same pathways we had. And yeah. uh, here was our generation kind of being the first to be able to do that in the numbers that we've done it. So what did it mean to them to see you do that? Yeah, they were really proud. It's one of the few times I saw my grandfather cry. Um, he's a really tough old Italian labourer. But also the family back home, I came back to Borolula and met all my family and they were like, wow, you're going to be a lawyer. That's amazing. You can you know, you can do this and this and this and you can help my son get out of jail and all this stuff. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. But the idea of treaty, you know, I, was a, you know, I studied treaty significantly and environmental law. 
And at that time, Yothi Yindi, you know, was really still really massive. And it's kind of a part of a popular consciousness. So as a lawyer in a family that has never had a, never seen someone graduate, it was a really big thing for both sides of the family. Yeah. I want to ask you about that transition from sort of law into academia and filmmaking, but I guess before we do that, it might be a good moment just to, I guess, make a bit of a reflection on David Uniapin, and I wonder if you can share with us what he represents to you. Yeah, this is a letter that was shared by the museum in the research we did. And it's such a powerful representation of what I believe he was facing in terms of the conditions that he worked in at that time. And in particular, I I thought, you know, asking for $25, the idea of asking for £25 and getting £5 back um, is a real indictment of how the system was. But in particular, what I really drew from this was the ambition to rise, the idea that against all the odds and against all of the systems that were at play, he maintained that really real you know, ambition to rise. And I, can, I, I really do see that in a lot of our young people today who are rising against you know, deaths in custody, who are rising for Black Lives Matter, who are rising against fracking and mining and the contamination of our lands. And karanga gingali is a term that our elders have taught me which is the idea of a rising stance, the idea that we have always been ready to look after country based on the conditions of survival. You know, the the basic idea of survival is much more present today in terms of protection of the environment. In those days, I think the idea of contributing to society and production would have been much more of a profound project. So in my mind, seeing him as an elder statesman and, you know, this is very much a nut and jury story too. So, you know, the idea of the family and all of the support that he had in terms of understanding that, that complexity around the deep, you know, Western religious beliefs and the deep knowledge that he would have held as a senior man, he must have been a little bit tortured in a way, I, I believe. So I think seeing these kind of letters documented and shared is really important to understand how other people were coming through. So working in a design school is amazing to see people really critiquing the idea of, say, materials, you know, the idea that we need to decolonise our relationship to the materials we use and the intent behind what we're trying to achieve. And Joel Springs, an amazing young Wiradjuri scholar who's doing that work in, in architecture at the moment. So I think the legacy of his story is going to continue to resonate across generations, albeit for different purposes. So I think that's, that's the real junction point. You know, we're in a museum right now, which was really a place where you put things in to kill them. You know, you put things in to kill culture. And um, now we're seeing an unsettled exhibition, you know, that's just been, a, you know, Laura McBride and Mariko Smith have just done an amazing job and the rest of the museum staff to say the foundations of this place are problematic to say the least. And, um, yeah, I'm just really, yeah, really, really excited to see how this legacy transforms and resonates across the generations in a way that we were never going to really understand. It's a difficult proposition to lay bullet points down for. But uh, I really am in awe of him, and I'd love to know more about the Nalanjeri context and, and learn more from his family about the legacy that is carrying on in his bloodline as well. I think that would be really important to understand. Mm. Let's return to that idea that you move from law to Mm. academia and then still in academia, but you've added filmmaking to your kind of portfolio of Mm. activities. Can you just talk us through that journey? Sure, yeah. So uh, one of the things that when I went back to Borolula, Borolula is in the southwest gulf of Carpentaria in the Northern Territory. It's a very small town and there's four main clans there. Uh, it's a very remote place. When I first went back there, you couldn't catch a bus there. You had to, you know, get a lift or, you know, it's a 12-hour drive from Darwin, southeast. And when I went back in the middle of my law degree, I went back and, I, you know, I, I thought I was... You know, I thought I was kind of a bit cool. I had dreads and I wore Birkenstocks before they were really cool. And, you know, and I turned up in this town, which is, you know, completely different to what I 
had grown up with. And I said, oh, yeah, you know, I'm studying Western law and I'm studying treaty law and environmental law and, you know, we can do all this stuff and it's all about rights. And they were like, ah, that's not really what it's all about, you know. Everything's about the country and, you know, the only reason why we have authority over the land is through our songs, our wallabas and our gujiga and our dances and our ceremonies. So that was really the beginning of a massive journey, a really massive journey of flipping the whole studying of law and the communication of what's important. And at that time, I watched Two Laws, which is a really, really amazing documentary that was done by Carolyn Strawn and Alessandra Cavadini in the late 60s and, and 70s. And it's, it's heralded as the first major documentary which where an Aboriginal community co-produced something with the filmmakers. And through that process, the idea that two laws existed was really importantly documented historically. And through that, that notion, the elders that I met were saying, oh, we really want to continue to do that story as law. You know, the idea that in our world, story is law. And the idea of communicating that in, in a way that reaches not only the people around you in situ, you know, the people that you're sitting in a circle at the, at the fire with, but how do you reach other generations that are not on country? How do you reach generations that have been ripped from their family and taken to other places? How do you reach generations down the track? And Two Laws was heralded still in the 90s as that sort of thing, and that was a, a video documentary. And so after that moment, I really got into filmmaking as a, as a way to, you know, the camera is my weapon of choice. You know, it's a way to speak back to colonisation. It's a way to transform understandings that are outdated. It's a way to create and share authentic voices, I think, and a way to offer a new mode of translation and communication that is much more authenticated through that process. Yeah, people thought I was crazy, like carrying a camera around and doing things like that and what's new media and all the things, but it wasn't trendy. But it's it's sort of, it's become much more of a mainstream thing. What does it mean to you to be able to tell Indigenous stories? I think for me it's about holding on to what's important to you. It's very much about a family endeavour. I've never really told a story that doesn't own me, I guess. And I'm, I'm sure you understand what I'm talking about, but in, you know, in our law, going through our ceremony and our law means that there's a lot of different rules around what you share. So as a Garawa man, I have responsibilities over all of the different aspects of my mother's country, the animals that are my mother. So the white crane, Wanora, is my mother and the rainbow parakeet is my mother. So you have responsibilities to tell stories that you are related to. So I think for me it's about understanding the responsibility of what you do when you tell a story, maintaining the important relationships that surround the story, and the intent of why you're telling the story being really trying to be more overt and clear about that is is something that I've found to be much more pertinent and meaningful for me personally. So Wabata Bunanu, for example, the Watershield film, was something that really was taking the two laws strategy, so the two laws strategy which was created decades before, and the elders said, no, we want you to tell the story again. And when we were shooting Wabata Bunanu with um, John Harvey as the producer, it was amazing. All of my mothers and all my relations came into the film, literally... The white crane flew into shot over the river that was contaminated. Beautiful shot. And Kanganga, the sea eagle, which is the final shot in the film, flew in, you know, just literally flew into the frame. And for us, that's really, really important, the idea that you're doing the right thing for country. So it's often deeply mediated by the elders and by by the mentors. And it really butts up you know, I think Indigenous storytelling butts up against the institutions that fund these things because it's, it's quite a different system. So that's often a challenge. Yeah. But just, it's such a great point to 
ask you to talk a bit about the methodologies you've been working on and developing, which I flagged at the beginning of our talk, as a real way in which you've sought to bring those knowledge systems into the Western Academy. So maybe you can tell a little bit about the work that you're doing, particularly around story work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, some of you might have uh, read a little bit about decolonising methodologies, and Linda Toiwai-Smith in particular is, you know, one of the leading scholars, and she wrote Decolonising Methodologies. And from that, a number of other really important spaces have opened up. And one of those is the, you know, esteemed elder Joanne Archibald and Indigenous story work. And through that work in particular, I think the idea of decolonising the way we do things becomes more profound in terms of understanding that we can do things in a different way. You know, we don't have to do things according to really outdated Western theories and methodologies, you know, kind of like dead old white guys, theory stuff. You know, the students that we're teaching are not interested in that. The students that we teach today want to be able to relate and see how these methodologies that they're engaging with have meaning for themselves. And that's one of the things that I think drives the decolonizing movement in particular is the idea that it allows for the ways of understanding the world, the ways of being in the world, and the emancipatory project that our communities hold. I think that's one of the key elements of the reason why these methodologies are doing incredibly well. And I see, you know, Indigenous story work, even though it comes from all the way from Canada and Stolo tradition, you know, we see it as an allied theory. So I developed with my family a methodology called Yanba Jungle, which is really talk story in the context of a mining companies, a range of mining companies that wanted to come in and destroy our homelands. So we developed a methodology to speak back to that, specifically using our own cultural concepts specifically using the emancipatory project of self-determination and the self-determining aspirations of our elders and also the way forward in terms of creative practice. So being able to story the work we're doing using our own languages and using our own modalities and cracking open the modalities, the Western modalities that we find ourselves trapped in Western disciplines has been really, really meaningful. And we've seen this does work. You know, I think this does work and it does transform everyday lived experiences and it does really challenge the foundations of this the system that that is really oppressive that is you know sending our kids 10 year old kids and the NT to prison you know that I went into Dondale to see my nephew I think some of you would know, Don Dale is, you know, is a youth prison in, in Darwin that was you know, under review for torturing you know, a number of people using spit hoods and things. And I went into that prison. This is in Darwin, and 35 degrees, it was a tin shed, a literally a tin shed with a couple of fans. This is the kind of conditions that our people are living in. So the idea that you know, our methodologies are deeply collective. You know, they're family-based. They're all about looking after country and maintaining relationships. And really, I think that, you know, for me, it's been a really beautiful way to celebrate the continuation and the continuity of our Indigenous knowledge systems as well. And if people want to learn more about that, we can recommend that book you've co-authored. Yeah, um, looking up Joanne Archibald would be a good start. But I'm running out of time. I've got two more questions I want to ask before going to the audience. Because you were talking about, and in fact you've mentioned it several times, the challenges around caring for country on your traditional land and your family and community have been really staunch in terms of trying to fight off mining and fracking, but have also faced some enormous environmental crises along the way, which are mm. becoming an increasing factor during our lifetimes. So I was wondering if you could share with us how we can move towards a sustainable relationship with country. Yeah. <laughs> Just tricky. I, I think the 80% of our community, Indigenous community, live in urban contexts now. And it's quite different for you know, the Garawa tribe, because we have significant land and it's quite different context to, say, Gadigal and, and all the, the other clans here. I think 
you know, first and foremost, land back. You know, like I think to have a connection to land, you need, you need your land back. You know, the idea of returning land to its indigenous custodians is the first and foremost. But in light of that, I feel some of the massive movements that are happening are really important in understanding, say, our relationship to fire. And I've worked a lot with Victor Stephenson, who just wrote Fire Country and has helped set up fire sticks. And anyone who's really interested in understanding how to rekindle a relationship to fire that's not driven by fear or, you know, yeah, I guess it's fear, you know, like one of the things that Fire Sticks does is teach, do workshops, and it, it's a national network of people in communities who are reactivating cultural burning. And in my mind, it's such a profound practice that should be prioritised by the government. You know, the recent bushfire Royal Commission didn't make any recommendations to support this fundamental practice which was born here and proven over thousands of years. So I think things like that, supporting and growing Indigenous-led leadership in the you know, cultural heritage and those practices is fundamentally important. And it's beautiful. Victor talks about the idea that fire should act like water. You know, fire should act like water and trickle across the land. And I think it comes back to the idea of water as a connector and understanding that if we start to engage with, you know, some of these really ancient practices in new contexts, we can actually really profoundly turn around this sinking ship, you know, the system, you know, we're really in a a crisis. And the bushfires, there's really strong evidence for it as well. So the bushfires tragically just went through all the south coast you know, we saw the ashes come up and all the way to Sydney. And at the protest, we were act- literally inhaling all of the animals that were burnt in the bushfires. You know, this is what's happening in our society. And the one place in the whole of the South Coast that wasn't burnt was the area that fire sticks had burnt and looked after for three years. And that's profound and, and it's incredibly beautiful. And it's crazy. Victor's been engaged to go to Canada to do a three-year project before the Australian government has taken this seriously here in Australia where this knowledge is held. Other countries and other Indigenous peoples have lost this knowledge. In particular, I think fire and connecting with fire and the story of fire is really important. My final question builds on that, really, because obviously fire technology is a technology we see people adopting, but... I guess just keeping with our theme of innovation and David Yaniapin, how do you see Indigenous people adopting new technologies and other innovations across the country? Yeah, I think, you know, what I'm seeing is a huge ecology of profound mechanisms for transformation of society. So in the fashion school, for example, there's an amazing work that's going on in terms of understanding that fashion and textiles and the ethics of materiality you know, and understanding that actually, you know, some of the designs that we had, which were about impermanence, were really, really, really great designs. You know, we don't need to create designs that will last forever. And some of the work that Lucy Simpson's doing, who's, you know, absolutely amazing designer, Yellowway scholar and designer who's working with us, but she's using her whole cultural framework to devise and do new things on country to really heal her country and, and move forward. It's amazing. I've seen some really incredible work also by Joel Spring, who's a Wiradjuri scholar, whose his project is really about understanding, you know, decolonizing matters. So sort of understanding everything that went into, say, this building, you know, we were just talking before, you know, the wood of the buildings. What country does that come from? What birthed this, you know? All of these institutions that we sort of sit in all came from places. And understanding that might mean that, oh, actually, we're not going to repeat those projects, We're going to use sustainable materials and don't worry about creating permanency, but actually the idea of creating something that is part of a beautiful circular economy. So I think those sort of things really excite me. I think some of the thinking behind it and also honouring and acknowledging First Nations here in Sydney. You know, often we hear, oh, all of the on-country work happens other places, but we're on-country here. There's a lot of work to be done, I think, in honouring that, and I really... You know, I'm really blown away with the Unsettled exhibition 
and the work that the museum's doing to really bring this story to light and that truth-telling. The truth is in the land and the stories of the land. And yeah, the truth-telling, this is my Miliaris, my son. And I thought this is a really great image, sort of the idea of, you know, our people really looking forward as a people in Australia, working together, but acknowledging, man, this is all stolen lands and this is unsettled. You know, it's unsettled, it's unseated, it's unbelievable that we haven't moved forward as a, as a nation and, and it's the next generation, like our children and their children, I feel like that will carry, you know, I think we can really feel good knowing that if we support Indigenous futurity, we can have a sustainable, um, healthy and, and vibrant future. It's a great note to end our chat on, and I I do want to ask if there's some questions in the audience. We have a roaming microphone which is COVID-friendly and will be wiped in between questions. So if you do have a question for Jason, we'll take a couple. Since we started late, maybe we can squeeze in at least two questions from the audience. Kia ora, I'm from... I've only been here 13 years, which doesn't seem very long, from Aotearoa, New Zealand, and it was amazing to listen to a partially New Zealand accent. I guess it's not so much a question as a point I'd like you your reflections on about the kind of perception or the marketing of innovation as being very technology-driven, whereas I see innovation coming from everyone and everywhere, and often cultural innovation is the most profound in short, utilises technology. But So I wondered what your thoughts were about how framing, reframing innovation to be from everyone and everywhere and uh, cultural process could help settler and post-settler Australians understand the power of the innovation of your peoples of you know, 60,000 years and the resonance of that past to the present and future to help us reframe, for example, time and our relationships with our environment, whether we're in a concrete city or regionally. Yeah, I worry about technology. I met a uh, Pueblo fellow who talked about a prophecy and he said, oh, we have a prophecy and the prophecy goes that one day in the future our children, a device will come into the community which takes away our children's attention. And I don't know, anyone with kids knows what a nightmare the devices are these days and how addictive they are and how much they take their attention and energy away from your body and your mind and your spirit. I really worry, I worry about technology in a way. And that's why I think some of the work that some of the upcoming scholars like Joel and Lucy are doing around material, you know, the materiality of things. And also the idea of the sovereign body as agency and that we have to take responsibility for our, you know, our impact on the environment in a way that we can't quite imagine yet. So we have a university ethics program. We have human ethics process. So you need to have all these, and a lot of our protocols are embedded into that. We're not talking about materials yet. What about the ethics of materials we're using? Because, like, if you're using a material that's really not good for the environment, then there's an impact of that. So I think we're going to see rapid and massive transformation of the understandings of innovation through the Material Ecologies Lab at UTS, which is really doing amazing things as well. But slowly, that's the painful thing, and stepping out of time... The amount of times all the people are, you know, they're like, oh, we want, we want this done next week, man, or next year. You know, if we're going to follow Indigenous cultural and intellectual property rights frameworks and do this properly, it's going to be a slow, careful, considered, intergenerational process. You've been listening to Associate Professor of Indigenous Research in the School of Design at the University of Technology, Sydney, Dr Jason DeSantelo. He was speaking as part of the Australian Museum's Lunchtime Conversation series, First Nations Innovators and Visionaries, held last month. And as you just heard, it coincides with the exhibition Unsettled, which is on display at the Australian Museum until October.
You'll hear from the curatorial team behind Unsettled shortly, but right now, let's hear some music from Emma Donovan. Here she is alongside the putbacks with Black Woman. Your mouth keep on giving till you just can't live. Getting weaker by the night, can't find a reason, no reason to live.
Emma Donovan there with Black Woman. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia, on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. As we mentioned earlier in the show, the Australian Museum is currently hosting the exhibition Unsettled. It tells Australia's foundation story from a First Nations perspective, focused on stories of survival, resilience and recognition. Informed by rigorous research and historical documents, the exhibition provides a major step forward in the process of truth-telling around colonisation and our shared history. Laura McBride is the Director of First Nations at the Australian Museum and Dr Mariko Smith is the First Nations Assistant Curator in the Exhibitions Engagement and Cultural Connection branch of the Australian Museum. I spoke with them ahead of the opening of the exhibition late last year. Now, I thought I'd start by asking you both and perhaps starting with you, Laura, what's shaped your worldview and your sense of self? Well, I'm a Walwan and Kuma woman. And I've grown up in my community and have a strong sense of my Aboriginal culture. And when I started to attend university, I noticed that Indigenous and non-Indigenous people, although both speaking English to one another, there was uh, a lot of misunderstandings and I felt like I had a bit of a place in being able to help with that. So I moved into the natural history space so that I could help facilitate Aboriginal voices in mainstream locations and, and become a facilitator of my people's voices and other First Nations people's voices. And what about you, Mariko? What's shaped your worldview and who you are? So I'm, I'm a Yuan woman and um, my background is in museums, um, so curatorial studies and also visual sociology and sensory studies, particularly interested in incorporating Indigenous ways of knowing into my daily practice and also interested in history, so a practitioner in history as well. And Laura, with this exhibition, why did you decide to undertake a community consultation in preparation for the exhibition? Well, it's a very large exhibition. It's a very controversial topic. It's very much like Australia Day. Australia has unresolved issues around its histories and legacies and two very different opinions on how that's been presented and how that's celebrated in this country. And so it was very important for me to consult with community to ensure that I was representing Indigenous voices on this particular national topic. It's such a great way to ground, as you say, what is a big topic and a topic that a lot of First Nations people have a lot of opinions about. Mariko, what did the community consultation process reveal? It revealed that there's a lot of complexity in how Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples view Australian history and particularly around the Captain Cook narrative. And it's told us that Cook is seen in many different ways compared to the mainstream Australian public and that it's important to privilege these First Nations voices and make sure that they feel included in part of the story. And Laura, from your perspective, when you got the feedback from that consultation process, how did you and the team then go about translating what the community was saying into an exhibition and in an exhibition space? Well, it's actually quite difficult because so much of Australia's true history has not been told and because Aboriginal voices have not been mainstream, the community wanted us to achieve quite a lot. So there were too many topics for us to address. And so what we tried to do was simplify those into a range of very clear categories that would enable visitors to be able to understand what actually happened in the foundation of Australia, both legally and physically to people on country. And so it's been a task of simplification, really, How do we teach people these very important narratives in a way that's not going to overwhelm the visitor in such an exhibition? The title of the exhibition itself, Unsettled, is fascinating. Laura, can you tell us about how you actually came to land on a name for what's a really complex set of ideas? Well, 
at the core, what's happening is that Australia's history until very recently is that Australia was peacefully settled. Aboriginal people didn't resist. It was generally a narrative of people coming here and having to fight against the harsh landscape and to develop this new country when really Australia was never peacefully settled. And so it's a play on that. It also reflects that Australia's history is still unsettled. Without truth-telling, there is no way that we can move forward with reconciliation. We also are in a year of bushfires and the ending of droughts and bad land management that's occurred over a couple of hundred years. And so the relationship between ourselves and the environment is unsettled. The history is unsettled. And so really there are so many things that are unsettled. And also uh, one of our colleagues said that very much learning this history will be a little bit unsettling for them because they haven't had to engage with these stories before in reflection of where they exist in this history. And so Unsettled has many layers of meaning. Mariko, Laura makes the really important point about how central the process of truth-telling is becoming. And from your perspective working in the space that you're working in, have you found that there's an increased interest in finding out an Indigenous perspective about issues? Is that something that's shifting? I believe in recent years or recent decades, I think there has been a significant shift towards more diverse views about history and about the story of how Australia came into being and particularly being highlighted through you know, NAIDOC week, having it as a, a theme about truth telling. And I believe Reconciliation Australia had conducted a survey, a barometer study about what people feel is important. And it was an overwhelming result regarding um, the Australian public wants to see more truth telling about the history. And Laura, just from your perspective, as you say, this is a very complex set of ideas that you're taking an audience through. But as you've been pulling it together, what are emerging as some of the highlights for you in terms of what will be in the exhibition? Well, the very important points, the big major points that I think people need to understand because they're directly connected to our socioeconomic experience as Aboriginal people. And so very much because this exhibition was in response to the Cook anniversary, the first theme we focus on is about what Aboriginal people think and feel and were thinking and feeling and what stories were passed down to their descendants. So Aboriginal story of Cook from the shore and the shore only, but then, of course, recognising invasions and that there were multiple invasions, not only one invasion, fighting wars. It's so important for not only the Aboriginal people of the time, but also the non-Indigenous people who had arrived in Australia, that they were engaged in a very large set of wars across the country. Uh, remembering massacres. In my hometown, we have bridges and parks and different things named after people who actually massacred ancestors of ours. And so it's important to remember those massacres and so that people can understand that there's still hurt and pain around those topics. And of course, the surviving genocide, that genocide was enacted in Australia. And a lot of those legacies are still reflected in a lot of our problems today. So over-incarceration, parenting with stolen generations, dispersal, missions and reserves, and how people live one another in a community. So there's a lot of things that need to be recognised so that we can be able to fix them or put structures in place so that we can have a better shared future. It strikes me listening to the process, the very collaborative process you've gone through in terms of thinking about the exhibition and some of the thematics you've pulled out, that one of the things you've got to juggle is that you'll have two audiences, really. You'll have the non-Indigenous audience and a First Nations audience who I suspect would have really different expectations What are you hoping that a First Nations audience will feel when they walk through the exhibition? Really, there's a lot of pressure on us, you know, to get this story right. For so long, Aboriginal people have been calling for truth-telling. And so we would hope that an Aboriginal visitor to this exhibition feels relief and feels that finally the truth is being told and a weight can come off their shoulders as well. Because on a day-to-day basis, Aboriginal people are constantly having to mitigate stereotypes of themselves or their families or of others. 
and to see a large cultural institution engage with these histories. I mean, we're a natural history museum. We're a site of authority. And so I feel that Aboriginal people will feel a great sense of relief from the show. But at the same time, we need to be careful not to re-traumatise our own people with these histories. And very interestingly, in the consultation report, you can see that Aboriginal people have asked not to see pictures of our people in chains and shackles and those pictures that re-traumatise people because we have seen them a lot, but they don't seem to have any impact on non-Indigenous Australians. And so take a different approach to that storytelling. Uh, that's what we're hoping to have achieved when we open the show. And for you, Laura, just also thinking about the other side of the audience there, the non-Indigenous audience, you made the point earlier that, you know, these are tough questions and tough issues and you are trying to create a space that not only at the same time is welcoming of Indigenous people who are so excluded from and felt so alienated from these very institutions, but are trying to bring a non-Indigenous audience in in a way that will engage them. How are you achieving that? Well, it's a very difficult one. We have to make sure that the histories we're presenting are not too harsh, I guess, upon the visitor. Uh, We want the visitor to engage with these themes and topics, but we don't want them to overwhelm the visitor so much that they turn off because... Aboriginal people in this country, we cannot move forward by ourselves. The structures that we live in, the people that we engage with on a daily basis, we need all Australians to move forward with us. And so essentially this exhibition must engage people and not switch them off to these heavy histories. And so I guess we're trying to use a mixture of cultural storytelling, facts, whilst at the same time being conscious and having the visitor engage with concepts and themes that they might understand. And I guess just the idea that it's a reflection on the 250th anniversary of Cook in the Pacific that doesn't really mention Captain Cook might be also something that wakes them up a bit. Yes, that's right. Well, I mean, Cook is but a small footnote in Australia's history Really, he started to be celebrated much more in the 1900s when Australia was trying to justify itself as a new nation. So he's very much a narrative that has been created in the last 100 to 120 years. And so really in the actual foundation story and how that's played out across the country, he he didn't have much of a role. I mean, Cook would have never heard the word Australia. He was also deceased nine years before the First Fleet arrived. And so we're doing a much more reflective history of Cook's role. And secondly, people are just so sick of Cook, our people especially. Everybody knows his story. And so this is an opportunity to talk about other people that might not be as well known in the foundation narrative, such as Joseph Banks and James Matra. Well, thank you both for being with us this evening on Speaking Out and dropping by and sharing your thoughts and your process in putting together this really important exhibition. Thank you so much. Laura McBride is the Director of First Nations at the Australian Museum and Dr Mariko Smith is the First Nations Assistant Curator in the Exhibitions Engagement and Cultural Connection Branch at the Australian Museum. That's the show for this week. Join us again next week when we mark NADOC Week at the Sydney Opera House with veteran musician and entertainer Uncle Vic Sims. Speaking Out is on Facebook and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au. We would love to hear from you. I'm Larissa Berendt and this is Speaking Out. Speaking Out.